Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 63. You know, for those of you following this podcast closely, you'll recall that I began promising autopsy episodes quite a while back. You might have already asked, what is taking him so long? Well, certainly the journey back from Dallas was interesting and had its own highlights, and I hope that you really enjoyed them. And I think that was a wander that was worth taking. But now it's time. Time for a series of episodes on the autopsy. This part of the story, perhaps understandably, has been the most difficult set of episodes that I have produced thus far in the podcast series. I have made and remade the episodes that represent the inevitable wander that has to go on in the middle of this medical labyrinth. The autopsy should have been a mountain of medical evidence that was dispassionate and that was allowed to stand on its own to point to the truth, whatever that truth was. For a number of reasons, that just didn't happen. It wasn't a mountain of medical evidence, and by some standards, people might say it wasn't even a mound. But like most medical evidence, it's complicated enough that you can still get lost in it. I certainly did. I've been around doctors and clinicians a good part of my adult life as I made a career in the hospital industry. Just days into my first role as a hospital administrator, I purchased a medical dictionary, Mosby's. I still have that same dictionary today. It's been invaluable because, like every profession, the medical profession has its own vernacular. Nothing takes the place of a good anatomy course because most everything emanates around the unique mapping in geography of the human body. It's the basis for a good many of the most common anatomical terms. While I never took an anatomy course, I did, over the course of my own administrative career, religiously use that Mosby Dictionary. I remember very distinctly the first word I had to look up more than 30 years ago. As a finance person, I found myself chairing a typical committee that you might find in any hospital today. It was a utilization review committee that monitors resource consumption and tracks patient stays in the hospital. The word was nosocomial. It's not intuitive, at least to a non-clinician, but it means or relates to a hospital-acquired infection. So in other words, a nosocomial infection would be one that you acquired while you were in the hospital itself. Such a thing is a red flag if you are running a hospital and such things are carefully monitored and followed up on if they occur. My point in telling you that story has nothing to do with my own personal experience. Rather, it was to give you a flavor of how unintuitive it is to listen to medical terminology and evidence related to an autopsy. That one word, nosocomial, is not something that you can phonetically say and then automatically understand. Understand that what it meant was a hospital-acquired infection. You really do have to study and learn the definition all by itself. Well, that's the way it is for most people anyway. 
And here's the dilemma for us on this podcast, I guess, really on any podcast that would be covering this topic or a similar one. We're not going to medical school as a prerequisite to listening to the next series of episodes on the autopsy, and honestly, that makes it tough for all of us. When lay people such as us wander into a technical area, there is always the risk that the untrained eye and mine will just, well, frankly, get it wrong. Even with 30 years in the hospital business as an administrator, as a non-clinician, I find the story of the autopsy boggling, confusing, and in the end, mind-numbing. But also in the end, I concluded that there were a few things that indeed make this part of our wander relevant to you as a podcast listener. Indeed, to you as a member of the jury. So I set out to bring at least a bit more clarity to this topic as seen through the simple mind of a non-technical observer. True to form in this small subset of episodes, we include some more storytelling, and there is no doubt that the topic of JFK's autopsy is replete with circumstances that allow for storytelling. So, you'll get your dose of that too. If you've been listening to the podcast all the way through from the beginning, you know I've used a lot of euphemisms and double-talking colloquialisms and sayings and whatever you want to call all that stuff. One of them that I like the best is when you see something that clearly doesn't add up, doesn't make any sense, doesn't adhere to any logic pattern at all, and seems so unusual that on its surface, it's probably just a lie, or at least a deception of some sort. But its true origins of defect are undetectable. Well, in that case, I might just say, that dog don't hunt. There's a lot of cases in the autopsy where that dog don't hunt. It's already November. It's hunting season, isn't it? Well, let's get the dogs out and spend a Saturday night letting them run. And let's see what they catch up to. You know, a dog running on a Saturday night might catch the scent of a raccoon or a rabbit. On the other hand, he or she might run into a coyote or a bear. That is the dilemma associated with running around in the woods in the middle of the night, isn't it? That is one reason why many of the early assassination researchers tried to stay on some level of tight formation, hunting in packs, so to speak. It was dangerous territory in the early 1960s, and the autopsy was a dangerous part of the woods. It's only sport now. Too much time has passed. And most, if not all, of the characters are gone now. But the story itself remains mysterious and curiously inviting. In the end, the story of the autopsy may not have really anything to do with the clinical conclusions themselves, but rather whether or not such conclusions were altered or obscured by the characters involved. Because if that is true, it was a conspiracy of a different kind. It was no longer a question of what group or groups of people might have come together to shoot the president. It was now a question of which government officials or government entities were engaged in covering it up. And why? Because there was no one present and conducting or controlling that autopsy, but government officials. 
So you can see how we are now entering a part of the story that very well could encompass the darker side of what everyone feared about what had really happened to JFK and what forces were really involved. And like other parts of the JFK story, there were real-life, non-sinister forces also bearing down on what occurred. As a podcast listener and a member of our jury, part of the task at hand is to listen carefully to what gets presented and determine if we can unravel some of the nefarious from some of the innocuous. So, without further ado... Let's listen to episode 63 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. As they stepped off the plane together, Robert Kennedy would again let Jackie know that there was a helicopter waiting to take her to the White House. Just like the trooper she had been in every moment so far of this horrific scene, she would turn to Robert and tell him no, that she was going to ride with Jack and be with him. She was going to Bethesda. Lieutenant Sam Bird was mortified when he and his honor guard had been asked to stand down. Perhaps one of the most concerning ceremonial aspects to him at that moment was that the president's coffin was being moved without the presence of an American flag on top of it. Men of honor in the military have a certain code for the fallen and the dead, and at this moment it was not being followed for the president of the United States, their commander-in-chief. General Godfrey McHugh had asked everyone to clear out, and he told the honor guard that he and others on the plane would take care of moving this monstrous bronze casket out and down. The scissors lift was the wrong size, and it actually couldn't rise high enough to be flush with the airplane exit. It made for a messy step down. Eventually, though, they would all be off, and the casket too. Major General Philip Wheel was the commanding officer of the Military District of Washington, or MDW, and he was going through the process of ensuring that the helicopter and its pilot, which was under his purview, was ready to go. It was an H-21 helicopter that had been assigned to take President Kennedy back to Bethesda so that the autopsy could be performed. But now the pilot himself had just heard of a change of plans. The body was now going by ground ambulance. Sam Bird's honor guard never got a chance to bring President Kennedy off the plane, but they would scamper back to Bethesda on the helicopter with another chance to help unload as the ambulance arrived there. Jackie would get into the ambulance and, rather than sitting in the front, decided that she wanted to sit in the rear, closer, closer to Jack, closer to the casket. The doors were locked and she struggled to get in. An odd and perhaps poetically fitting moment as they arrived back in Washington. The ambulance was a two-way proposition that day. Coming from the hospital, it carried several medical personnel. Lyndon Johnson had a known heart condition and so the hospital had dispatched a nurse and another clinician to address the new president. They quickly made their way out of the ambulance as it began to ready itself with a new group of passengers for the return trip with the president's body. Bill Greer, the driver of the limousine in Dallas, 
would be the driver of the ambulance carrying the president's body. Roy Kellerman, another Secret Service agent who sat next to him in the limousine in Dallas, would also climb into the ambulance. Robert Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy would make their way into the ambulance as well. It was stuffed, and yet it still couldn't hold all of the entourage that was going to make its way to Bethesda and surround Jackie. There were more cars behind them as well. Still, Secret Service agent Paul Landis was assigned to riding with the Kennedys, and he would also make his way into the ambulance. Now it seemed to be full. And just when there wasn't enough room for anyone else, Admiral Berkeley, the last passenger, would pile in anyway at the end, ending up on Landis's lap for the entire ride. Soon, the drive to Bethesda was underway, and Robert Kennedy would reach forward and open the plastic partition that separated the front and the back of the ambulance seats. He would say to Roy Kellerman, who was sitting in the front, Did you hear they apprehended a fellow in Dallas? By this time, that night, the world was awash with the news about Lee Harvey Oswald. Apparently, though, at that moment, Kellerman did not know, which is somewhat odd in that a number of the inhabitants of the plane had been watching television news on Air Force One in the plane's stateroom, and the news of Oswald's capture and detention had been broadcast and seen by at least a few on the plane prior to the plane's departure from Dallas. Somehow, that information did not spread like a virus through the plane to everyone. I guess the sorrow of that moment, those moments, was so intense that it would have been poisonous to inject the agony of a real face, a real name, related to the assassin. It was just too raw at that moment to think about such things. Kellerman acknowledged the comment and indicated that, at some point when they got to Bethesda, he would come and talk to Bobby. There was plenty of time to talk on this trip that took about 45 minutes. Jackie would speak on a myriad of things, including the fact that she did not want any undertakers involved. She wanted everything done by the Navy. Why she made these statements is not clear, but she specifically asked Berkeley and others to ensure that these next crucial, critical hours would ensure that. I suppose part of it was a privacy concern. I am sure she could hardly fathom the idea of pictures of the president, the dead president, floating around and potentially seen in the public realm. That, for sure, was something that she and others in the Kennedy family did not want to happen. There were other conversations in the ambulance on the ride over. Jackie and Bobby talked briefly about the swearing-in. It was the first time that Bobby Kennedy would hear that Johnson had told Jackie on the plane that he had talked with Bobby and that Bobby had okayed a swearing-in in Dallas. It was but one of the new president's actions that would come to startle Bobby on that day and in the ensuing days to come. Bobby made it clear to Jackie and others in the car that he had not suggested that a swearing-in take place in Dallas. Jackie decided it was time to tell the story of exactly what happened in the plaza. And so, right there in the ambulance, she told it as she saw it to those listening. Certainly, they had their own visuals already. Most of them. Most of them were there. But she was telling Robert. He wasn't ready to hear it, but he was also not ready to tell her no. 
So he just listened quietly as she relived the horrible moments of the shooting itself. The route to Bethesda would take them close to the center of the city where they would pass nearby to the U.S. Capitol and the mall area, including the Federal Triangle where so many of the highest administrative offices of the government are located, including the offices of many who worked for Robert Kennedy himself. This was the seat of our national government, and it was a place that these Kennedy men knew all so well. And both of them were in the ambulance together at that moment. So many Americans in government had been watching from their offices that day. The landing at Andrews Air Force Base and the unloading of the casket was captured live on television. So those working in the Capitol that day knew it would only be a few minutes before that ambulance passed somewhere nearby on its fateful trip to Bethesda. Many of them would stay late in their offices to watch, hoping to get a glimpse of the ambulance and whatever motorcade would come with it, which turned out to be a police motorcycle escort, but with no sirens. JFK did not like the sirens. There were essentially three points of entry at Bethesda as the ambulance approached. Captain Robert O'Canada was an M.D. in the United States Navy, and he was the commanding officer of Bethesda Naval Hospital. The hospital itself was but one unit at Bethesda Naval Medical Center. Captain Canada was unsure which gate the ambulance would come through. In preparation, the hospital had made sure that there was a chaplain and a nurse at all three locations. There was no secrecy about what was happening, and a large crowd began to gather around Bethesda. The hospital compound itself in those days had little, if any, protective fencing or gates that would prevent crowds from getting close. And in fact, that's exactly what they did. They all came and parked as close as they could, and they walked in as closely as they could in some sort of tribute to the fallen president. It was a solemn crowd that was just there to watch this historic event. I guess, the way people do, as a way to grieve themselves. They did this as the ambulance drove up. They would watch Jackie and others exit from the ambulance. Captain Canada and Rear Admiral Calvin Galloway would greet the members of the entourage as they pulled up in the ambulance and got out. Captain Canada and Robert Kennedy would help Jackie out of the car. Others from Jackie's entourage would soon approach the gathering group as these folks arrived in other cars that followed the ambulance to Bethesda. Canada and Galloway would quickly usher them to the elevator and take them to one of the two VIP suites, with the Kennedys going to the suite on the 17th floor, the penthouse of the building. They would need all the room there because, soon, there would be an entourage of the Kennedys' closest family and friends that would come to Bethesda. They had been waiting for her to arrive at the White House, but when they received news that Jackie was not coming directly there, many of them decided that it was time to head to Bethesda to be with her. Among that group was Ben Bradley and his wife, Tony Bradley. Ben Bradley was the now famous and iconic editor of the Washington Post, and he and Tony were close friends with the Kennedys, and especially President Kennedy. Years later, he would play a pivotal role as editor of the Post in uncovering the Watergate scandal. 
As they all piled out of the car and made their way into the main lobby, Godfrey McHugh would walk behind the rest of the crowd and catch up with Rear Admiral Galloway, and with other high-ranking naval officers as well. McHugh informed Galloway that he was going now to get to the morgue for the autopsy and the embalming. It was at that moment that he let Galloway know that Mrs. Kennedy did not want an undertaker involved. Galloway was taken aback. He would immediately tell McHugh that he just didn't have the facilities for that at Bethesda. He would go on to say that I highly recommend a funeral parlor. McHugh kept at it. He wouldn't take no for an answer. He said, these are the family wishes. Isn't it possible? Galloway knew that this was a sensitive moment, so his response was, it's not impossible, but it's difficult, though, and it might not be satisfactory. This began the start of an extended conversation about the possibilities and what was required to actually make such a thing happen. The back and forth took place over a 10 to 15 minute period, and all during that time, the ambulance stayed parked out front with McHugh close to it. It was clear from others watching this exchange that McHugh and Galloway were not in agreement. During the course of this exchange, two members of the Irish Mafia would enter the conversation. It was Kenny O'Donnell and Larry O'Brien. They reaffirmed for the Admiral what the good general had just told him, that the decision had been made, and it was the wish of the family that the Navy take care of the autopsy and the preparation of the body afterward a decision that Galloway was not happy about, but there was nothing he could do about it. He had gotten his orders, so to speak. Now everyone would scurry up the elevator to the VIP suites to find solace once again, and then a silence took over the first floor, and General Godfrey McHugh found himself again beside the ambulance and alone with the president's casket. In the mad scene of the day that had continued all the way to Bethesda, this president's casket was seemingly abandoned right in the middle of a set change, so to speak. The players all scattered and getting ready for the next performance. Leaving the dead president by himself and out front of the main entrance of the Naval Hospital in his bronze casket, just resting there in the rear of the gray ambulance that had carried him to Bethesda awaiting the final jog on the campus and delivery of the casket and the body to the morgue. Thank you for listening to Episode 63 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 